What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. Today, my guest is Dr. Dara Rampersad. He's a forensic psychologist and nationally board-certified counselor. But more than that, he's a huge advocate for public safety and mental wellness. Today, he and I talk about his growing up in Trinidad, we talk about building resiliency in public safety, and so much more. Please enjoy. So, Dr. Dara, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. And if we started, we just sat down and started talking about um, resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I know that is an area of, of expertise for you and something I really, really want to talk about with you. And I, I really want to talk about um, the work that you've done with crisis intervention. And I want to talk about um, your prof- your uh, professorship at ASU, the work you're doing over there. And Actually, I noticed something, too, in your bio. It says you're a forensic psychologist. Mm-hmm. So this conversation might take a strange turn at some <laughs> point. Um, but I want to talk about all that. I, I want to dive into that stuff. But I, but before we do, I want to give people a little bit of a backdrop of who you are. Because you, you have, you know, based on your bio, people will see that you're really involved <laughs> with public safety. And um, and before that, though, there was Dara the Kid. And uh, you have a beautiful accent, which I just love. <laughs> and because uh, you grew up in... Trinidad, right? In Trinidad, yeah. 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 In the islands, brah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So <laughs> yeah. tell me a little bit about about your, about your growing up in the islands. I want to hear about that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, at the core of who I am is a barefoot kid playing in the street, you know, just playing whatever seasonal sport was around. What's your uh, favorite? You know, we played we played lawn tennis on asphalt in the road <laughs> barefoot growing up. You know, we didn't have a net. You know, we would just hit around the ball. We would kick. I think probably we call it football, but soccer, you know, in the U.S. Uh, Football was probably my favorite growing up because we would play once again, you know, you bust up your foot in the street playing, uh, you know, barefoot, but having a great time, you know, and uh, it's just all the neighborhood kids coming coming around together and just uh, enjoying every afternoon together until the sun would go down and then just past that, then you have to get home, you know, by force to go do homework and whatever else you needed to do, you know. Um, so tennis, soccer, uh, cricket, of course, uh, that is a, a kind of staple in the Caribbean that we all grew up playing. Uh, is we don't have baseball, so cricket is the is our sport down there. Okay, I have a question about cricket. Yeah, sure. So I've never, I've never, I've seen it played here and there. You yeah. know, I've never actually sat down to try to figure out what exactly is happening. Yeah. So can you give me a quick <laughs> overview on what cricket actually is? Yeah. <clears throat> Cricket is fun. Uh, it's it's more fun to play than it is to watch for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about all sports, frankly. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's more fun to play. So what would happen in cricket is is you essentially have these two batsmen, and uh, and they take turns depending on who is at the primary wicket hitting the ball, and so it depends. So in in cricket, you hit the ball and you make runs. Uh, just like you would try to make runs around a base in in baseball, except you'd be running back and forth like this, back and forth, to make runs. Uh, there are two ways that you could bypass having to run. One would be as if you hit the ball to the boundary and nobody was able to field it. Um, and then you'd be able to get four runs, or you would have to hit the ball just like you do in a home run uh, over the uh, the boundary, and you'd get six runs. Like automatically. Yeah, and then you don't have to run it. Okay. Yeah, which is good. Otherwise, they're trying to field the ball, and you're trying to race back and forth between the wickets. That's exactly right. How far apart are those things? To get as, as, oh, my gosh. It's been, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, if I had to make a guess, I would say 
20 feet, 25 feet maybe. Okay. Yeah. And, and is the pitcher, I don't know, you could call it a pitcher? Pitch, uh, a bowler. The bowler? Is B-O-W-L-E-R, bowler. Bowler. Oh, okay. Is he trying to hit the wicket or That's what's correct. his? Okay. Yeah, and any part of that wicket gets hit and, and the batsman is out. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So yeah. it's very similar to baseball in a lot yeah, of ways. It, it really is. Yeah. yeah. And in, in fact, I mean, you would even say that like a game like cricket, which led to rounders and then to baseball. And so the history of baseball probably comes really in a, in a long way. This isn't to, you know, offend anybody, you know. But, I mean, honestly, the Brits back in the day, they, you know, spread their sports and other things, you know. And, and we change things up, right? You know, you take things like American football versus rugby, you know, and just all of these different sports that are related, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's more fun, more fun to to play, honestly. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> That's. I'm a huge fan. I have a, a brother-in-law who's a super sports freak, mm-hmm. and he and I like. I have nothing to say. I'm like, I love playing the game. I will mm-hmm. go out and play, but the idea of sitting down and watching a bunch of folks <laughs> play a sport, I'm like. I mean, I, I don't know. I get it. I, get, I understand the attraction. And I'll be honest, when it gets to, like, the, the playoffs and stuff, when the games are very serious and everything's on the line, mm-hmm. I, I'm interested. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. more fun for me. Yeah. When it's just, like, especially, like, baseball, for example, the season is – and this is heresy, I know. But the season is so long. <laughs> I just lose – I don't have the attention span, I guess is what it is. It's really just me. I just don't have the attention well, span. Well, you know, Rain, we're pretty busy people, so I just don't think that we have the time because we have so many other projects <laughs> going on. That's what it is. I'm just too important for watching those sports. That's it. I got too much going on in my life. Yeah. Which is true. I'd rather do other stuff. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, so so growing up in Trinidad, I want to hear more about, tell me a little bit about what it's like to grow up there. So playing, you know, cricket and what other kind of cultural things do you like look back on and go, that that was very Trinidadian? Uh, <clears throat> any Trinidadian would tell you that number one is carnival. Every year at carnival, um, that is something that is defining for a lot of uh Caribbean people and especially Trinidadians that live in and around town uh, because it occupies and shuts down town for at least a couple days Um, you know so you have they're always the two days before Ash Wednesday and then um, I just have really fond memories growing up and as a child you know walking through the bands and asking people for costume pieces and (laughs) pretending to play it was just a lot of fun growing up um, and back then it was safe too, you know, I mean, you didn't have kids getting kidnapped and other things like that, that were going mm-hmm. on, you know, it was just a safe environment to be able to, to go and play and, and stuff. Um, uh, other things that really are, are Trinidadian, I think would be, um, you know, Maracas beach, going to, uh, to Maracas beach to have shock and bake. That got that got to have what? Uh, so so the old school people would call it shark. So it's fried shark mm-hmm. and a bake, which is like a Indian fried bread. Okay. And then you make this sandwich inside of. Uh, so you make this like a sandwich, and then you have condiments in it, like uh, we call it shadow benny. Here you call it cilantro, culantro, and uh, so there's sauces that they make out of that with pepper sauce and mm. and other things that you could eat on it, man. And it's absolutely delicious, you know. Yeah, it sounds good. It's great. It's <laughs> great. so great. My mouth is watering. Yeah, like, dude, yeah, mine too. Yeah, yeah I know. Good. And then doubles, uh, another local staple in Trinidad. Uh, you could find doubles vendors, and this is uh, essentially like two s- uh, smaller Indian fry breads that you would find here in Arizona. And uh, in between is uh, chickpea. And so we call it chana. 
And so, uh, so it'll be Chana in between. And then you'd put sources on that too, like Shadow Benny or uh, Pepper Sauce or, or, or Cucumber, uh, sorts of chutneys and stuff. And it's just, it's absolutely, nice. and you just they wrap it up on the side of the road, you eat it on the side of the road. It's just very local. It's, it's fantastic stuff. Nice. You know? I, it's one of those places that I've, uh, I've never been to the islands yeah down there no nope. yeah. yeah it's on my list it's yeah. on my list of things to do i hope you do yeah yeah you one love of these it. days i gotta get down there yeah and if we have a head down i'll let you know too so you could yeah i get a tour know. guide that'd, yeah, be right. Right. that'd be amazing <laughs> that would be phenomenal yeah it's a lot of fun man it's That's a great cool. place so what you know clearly you're here in arizona now mm-hmm. so what brought you all the way up here uh, really, my travel across from Trinidad was school, and so I left Trinidad, went up to Canada. Um, I was actually born in Toronto, but uh, but then lived my whole life growing up in Trinidad um, until leaving to go back uh, to Toronto to go finish uh, school. And Did you then, go to co- college in TO? Yeah, fi- yeah, so finished off uh, just my last year of high school there, and then uh, went to University of Western Ontario out in London, Ontario. Oh, okay. I did my undergrad. I got to tell you a stupid story. Yeah. So I lived in Toronto for a number uh-huh. of years when I was in high school. Uh-huh. And my dad was dating a lady mm-hmm. who lived in uh, lived in London. Mm-hmm. And I remember my, one day my dad's like, hey, we're going to get on the train and go to London. And I'm like, London? <laughs> I, you know, I was what, four, 13 or 14 years old. I'm like, Do we, can you take a train there? I'm a little confused. And, it, and on the way to London, if I remember this correctly, we traveled through Paris, Ontario. Yeah, right. And so I'm like, this place is pretty exotic. I had no idea. Anyway, stupid memory from when I was a kid. But it's That's classic. I love. Uh, it's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, uh, you also pass Waterloo. Right. <laughs> right. There's an ad- clearly Ontario is having an identity crisis. The towns yeah, there right. are having an identity crisis. So, um, so you went to school out there. How'd you like that? It was great, man. Oh man, it was so much fun. We, we just, it was so much fun. Had a great time in London, Ontario. Uh, but I mean, backing up to Toronto, when I when I, I had a real culture shock, I remember my first day going into high school over there. I remember seeing a kid getting arrested at, at high school. And, so in, you were in Toronto proper, so yeah, kind of, it's pretty very urban for those who aren't familiar. Yes, yeah, really, really urban. And uh, the school that I that I attended and the place that I lived was really uh, immigrant heavy. So you know, all of us, you know, immigrants that moved there, it was just very concentrated and. Um, but I had never been really exposed to that kind of stuff growing up in Trinidad. Uh, so to see a kid, a high school kid being arrested, you know, and then the print, I get into the principal's office. Uh, this is at a school called Mark Gono Collegiate Institute. Uh, so it's, you know, smack dab in, you know, in Toronto and, um, the principal says, well, you know, you're, I used to lift weights back then. And, you know, and he said, well, you're a bigger kid, so you could expect you're going to get picked on. I was like, what? <laughs> the heavens is going on here. This is not what I signed up for, you know. I just want to go to school. So I was, I was, I was very lucky back in the day. I used to lift a lot, and um, and so I quickly established myself in the gym. You know, it was no big deal. Made friends with the biggest guys at school. You know, um, good strategic planning. Yeah, yeah, good move. <laughs> Although the first day, I almost got pummeled by one of them because I was sitting in math class. Of course, you know, like most of us, we sit in the back of the class. You know, and I was sitting dead last row. Didn't think I was going to. Yeah. And everybody's <laughs> here, you know, right? And this this huge guy named Salim came up and behind me, and he said, "Hey, you're in my seat." 
<laughs> and I had the thickest of accents back then too. So I mean, I spoke to him and he was taken aback. I think he expected me to be from somewhere else, you know. And uh, and he and he backed off completely. And he said, "Hey, no worries. I'll sit next to you." And he was this this ginormous Kenyan guy. I remember. Uh, and then he introduced me to all of the Kenyans that afternoon, and and everything went well, and I never had an issue, you know. Nice. And I think it speaks about relationship, you know, and and I mean, talk about the early stages of resiliency, you know. There were days that was so hard for me moving away from my primary family when yeah. I was seventeen, and then getting across to Toronto. And I had my my dad's family who I was living with, who I'm extremely grateful for because they took me in as a as essentially like a stranger. So your so your folks didn't go with you. You just oh went no, by it was just me. Okay. Yeah, and so moving out at like seventeen or so, and then uh, living on my own towards the later half of seventeen, uh, it was a, a huge shift. You know, I had been coddled my whole life, and and then I had to grow up real fast between seventeen and eighteen to figure out how to be a grown up, independent person. Yeah. You know. Yeah. What are, what were some of the challenges you faced that you think that kind of drove that chan- challenge or drove that the, the <clears throat> adaptation for you? Because I feel like you know we 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 show up without having the skill set and we get thrust into some of these environments and we have to just adapt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember vividly some days. Um, so I had no car, you know, I, that was not the MO for back then. I was taking the bus and walking. I didn't even have a bicycle back then, you know, and I remember in the thickest of snowstorms having to walk. And I mean, I'm physically leaning into the wind that is, is blowing that hard back. You know, and uh, yeah, you're giving me flashbacks. Oh, bro, it was crazy. It was crazy. I mean, went through some hard times and 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 going to the grocery, walking in the snowstorms, mm-hmm. and uh, and trudging through, you know, two feet of snow. And it doesn't sound like a big deal, but I mean, you know, you're walking for a couple of miles, and the you know minus whatever degrees it was, minus twenty outside Celsius. You know, I mean, it it, it takes a toll on you. So I remember one year getting a bicycle and uh, and. And then, you know, finally, you know, you carry so many grocery bags on your hands that you put them around your wrist and then they just start, your hands start turning purple, you know, because yeah. all of the weight of the bags are weighing down on your hands, right. you know. I had that, you know, just, that was a weekly occurrence, you know. And, right. and so I remember the first time getting a bicycle and I was able to put the grocery bags on my bicycle handles and ride home. And I remember feeling so accomplished, you know, <laughs> that I, you know, I had arrived you know, I was finally able to at least not, you know, so little steps like that, like being appreciative of, of little things like that, you know. Mm. I didn't have a car until much later on in life when I got into my master's degree over at Michigan State. Yeah. And that very same bicycle was one that I was riding in the middle of a snowstorm. And I remember driving, riding by a, a, a used car lot and begging my parents to give me 2500 bucks so I could buy a 1987 Honda Civic. Uh, that was on the lot, and uh, and I threw, I disassembled my bicycle, threw it in the back <laughs> of the truck, in, in the back of the uh, Honda, and uh, and took that '87 Honda back home for the first time. I remember that because it leaked oil everywhere, and it was a <laughs> it was a lemon. You know, there's something to be said for you know you talk about building resiliency, but you know, your first car being a lemon. That's a that's an important oh. uh, life event. It was. I think. Yeah. It was. I think somebody tampered with the odometer, and it really wasn't <laughs> what it was supposed to be at. Yeah. 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 My first car was a Pontiac Aster, and it had a series. I had to like go through like a a, a series of. Uh, steps in order to get it to, to start up yeah, yeah <laughs> to right. take the shifter and jiggle it this way <laughs> rotate the handle you know the steering the wheel yeah it had all kinds of weird little anomalies you had to do to it to, to make it run 
<clears throat> so what I hear and what you're saying about resiliency a little bit is, you know, for, as a young man facing challenges kind of one at a time. Mm-hmm. And I th- the resilience is almost like lifting weights. You start, you know, you're building strength and adaptation over time mm-hmm. with each little insult, right? And recognize, and then reflecting back going, okay, I got mm-hmm. this. And I, you know, I think sometimes like, hey, I've survived a hundred percent of the horrible days that I've had to this point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Here I am yep. surviving. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's kind of a silver lining type of perspective, but mm-hmm. I think that, um, it, ta- it, sometimes it takes time and then being able to reflect back on it. Is that kind of your experience? It is. I mean, you know, as you talk about, it, I think about my dad and his alcoholism when I was growing up, you know, and, and what resiliency looked like, you know, I mean, I, I avoided being at home in the afternoons so I could, you know, not have to face his alcoholism. You know, and this isn't to air dirty laundry. It's just a matter of, you know, mo- of most of us, if not all of us, have been exposed to alcoholism in some fashion. And so, you know, getting through, the, I mean, I- I'm very fortunate. He wasn't a violent drunk by any means at all. He was a quiet drunk, you know. But, you know, he was an absent parent, you know. So my mom had to pick up the slack of of mom and dad. And luckily we had, Trinidad is very common. We have housekeepers that, that are living. And so they live in at, at your house like maids. Uh, so we were fortunate to have Sylvie, who was there as a constant throughout our life. Um, but my mom worked hard, man. She worked, you know, I saw, I, I, I witnessed resiliency. So if you could get vicarious resiliency, I saw this in her. I saw this, that she was able to be strong and to, you know, she would work from morning until seven o'clock at night and come home and, uh, you know, she really, she really gave, she gave a lot to the family and she was our primary breadwinner as well as our emotional support. She, she just did everything, you know. So I have a, just a ginormous respect for women and, uh, especially women in the workplace and, and seeing, you know, how powerful a role, um, my mom and other women have. And so I have a very matriarchal family, you know, and, and so, you know, women were always at the top of the food chain in my family and, you know. So uh, to me, all of those things, like, I never really thought about that before, which is, we usually talk about vicarious trauma, right? right. But what about vicarious resiliency? Uh, I've never thought about that until right now. Um, I think that that probably is something that we need to look at, you know. I, I know that sometimes I might think to myself, oh, shoot, what would Rain do in this situation, you know? Or, or what would he say? And I know that most of us do that, you know, we channel each other, you know. Right. And I think I've channeled my mom and and some other family members that I grew up with in, in other ways. You know, it's, I think you're right. Like, I think that there are certain things that we learn um, throughout the course of our childhood that are that are that we're exposed to. And we don't even realize that we're growing and learning, right? Mm-hmm. We learn social nuances and social behaviors just by the examples that are being set by the people we're surrounded by. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that vicarious resiliency, that I love that expression, um, because I think that if we look at our lives, we can see the examples that have been set for us mm-hmm. by various peoples. You mm-hmm. know, it's funny as a as an example, my uncle, um, who is now in his late seventies. He may be in his early eighties now. <laughs> paying attention, he's old, and um, he still works. Right, he's a lawyer, and he he is he's never said like he's like yeah at some point I'll retire, and he just slowed down a little bit, took a few less work, a few less cases, etc. But the example he set was he was always just getting after it, 
And it wasn't a deliberate like, hey, this is how I do business. I'm working, working, working. It was just an example that he set in his life. And so I look, you know, he's one of the people that I look to and go, okay, there's an example of somebody who is in my life who just by virtue of being around me shared their philosophy, right? With their behaviors and their actions and, and maybe some of the things that I heard them say, you yeah. know, the, the values they set for life, et cetera. 100%. I have yeah. an uncle named Uncle Chris that I do that with the exact same thing, you know, just huge level of respect, you know, he wasn't perfect growing up, but he is a great role model in terms of many things, you know? Right. So a similar experience, you know, sometimes our uncles, our aunts, our grandparents, you know, I remember my grandfather, he was just like the lion of the family. He was like the lion of the pride. He didn't say much. He was there. He was strong. He was quiet, you know? Mm. Uh, and, and, but he was great, you know? Um, he had a bit of, you know, he, he made sure that he was involved, but, right. but he, my grandmother ruled the show, you know, <laughs> she was, she was really in charge of stuff. Right. Um, it was just great, great times growing up, yeah. great family. Uh, you know, as you look at an overall picture, you know, alcoholism, uh, permeated many different parts of our family from in-laws to other things. And, and one of the cultural variables, unfortunately, in Trinidad is that alcohol is just so prevalent and such a social engagement sort of lubricant that uh, mm. people just aren't even looking at the effects of, of that. So, you know, I, I've, I've changed a lot since uh, I was growing up. You know, alcohol is hardly ever a part of my life at all. Uh, and I do that because of a role model to my daughter and um, want to be a great husband and, and family member and community member. And the truth is, is that, you know, I'm always on call. You know, anything could happen at any time for any of my guys in public safety. And I need to be able, I want to be able, not need to, but I want to be able to respond. Uh, you know, we had an officer involved shooting yesterday in Peoria, and I like having clear mind, a clear mind to be able to attend to those things, you know, day or night. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a, that, it's interesting because it, you, you base that on a value, right? Mm -hmm. Your own personal value, uh, which I think is really important that you identified that and said, this is what you wanted to be able to do because um, so many times we uh, we allow the social circumstances around us to sort of like a kite in the wind to just drive us whichever direction we go mm -hmm. and I think that there's some there's real value in saying I'm going to live a deliberate life and make you know drive certain decisions in my life and surround myself with people who are going to influence me um, who have values that I aspire to be like mm -hmm. um, etc mm -hmm. you know? so how did you know so did you do your undergrad in psychology? I did. I did. My first degree was in psychology, and, and then my master's degree was in community counseling. Mm. And then my uh, doctoral degree, my PhD, is in, in counseling psychology. Um, but I had to create an emphasis. So, you know, there's an next journey of resiliency. My program at Georgia State University did not offer forensic track. And so I needed to create a forensic track for myself and back then, you know, I mean, shoot, you know, I was pulling out the yellow pages and the white pages and I was flipping through psychological practices, looking for a, a, any practice that would offer any kind of forensic. So forensic would will define that then as being anybody, any patient that has for, uh, legal involvement. And so oh. any kind of legal involvement. So, you know, when in my master's degree, I had started to specialize in this because I had um, a, a practice that I was working at in my practicum called total health education 
It was run by a man named Don Wilde, who was a, he had a PhD in divinity. He was a pastor. And uh, I remember his compassion working with the population we served, which was uh, people who were uh, sex offenders and domestic violence perpetrators, economic, economic and property crime perpetrators, and substance peoples, people who were addicted to substances. And I remember uh, learning so much from him and the folks at that agency that I wanted to continue working within, you know, either a correctional facility like my my father did when I was growing up. He was a a chaplain, a a pastor, if you will. Uh, He was a pundit, so he was a Hindu pundit. But he was uh, he would go to prison facilities and he would give people last rites and other things like that. And um, and I, I really wanted to be able to work within a facility. I remember asking my father growing up, you know, what it was like to go behind the prison walls and to be able to work with inmates. And I was very curious about that stuff, you know. Uh, he, he also had a bachelor's degree in psychology and he worked as a social worker for, before he got laid off, um, for, uh, in Trinidad. So, so when I, moved away and I had an opportunity to do so and I was working with Don and these folks um, it was a natural progression for me to want to continue that in my PhD program to seek these things out so I cold called a whole bunch of people finally I ended up getting a practical experience doing domestic violence work which I was very comfortable and accustomed to and uh, then I ended up going to work at my first uh, prison facility and uh, and it was really really great it was it was fantastic um it was a maximum security male prison and um and getting in there was was good uh i i did a few of them so my first one was uh was actually up in michigan before i moved down to to georgia and it was at uh, uh in freeland this saginaw correctional facility and i learned so much working in that in that arena uh, had a great mentor there too, Anne Date, uh, who worked in a community who hired me on, and then uh, led substance abuse groups and other things like that. And but here's the thing, right? I mean, you talk about resiliency. I picked up resiliency from these inmates too. I sucked it up wherever I could find it. You know, I was looking to see. You know, here you are. You're stuck. You're on death row. You are stuck in prison for the rest of your life. How do you wake up in the morning and have a smile on your face? How do you wake up in the morning, period? Right? And would I have the strength to do something like that if I were in their position? And I, and you, and so, you mean, you really you need to step back and, and, and realize that there are a lot of people in this world that have it worse than you do. Right. And well, they, I, I'm, I'm glad you just it. asked that question because there's a certain, you know, the folks who are who are away in in prison and who have no chance of coming out, you know, I mean, you just asked the question and the same question I had in my head, which is, how do you go on each day? Mm-hmm. You know, what does that look like? And, mm-hmm. and what is your? Because to me, there's a there's a my question for myself each day is, what is my purpose? Mm-hmm. And if my purpose is eat, breathe, and sleep, mm-hmm. like how do you? Mm-hmm. So so what did what did we do? What yeah. did those folks do? How did you give them? I would sense s- of... these inmates uh, would wake up and I'd say, "Hey, how are you doing today?" and and he would say, "Blessed." Like some of these inmates would say, "Blessed." That was their word, right? So then I investigate that further. I said, "You know, that's interesting to me that you are you're going to be here forever and and you wake up and you say that you're blessed." And he said, "Yeah, because I work upon the right side of the earth." And so to them just waking up was, you know, they know what their life is. They they expect what is going to be 
you know, how they want to create their life, you know, given the parameters that they have to work within, and they're going to make it work, you know. Um, and, and it's just incredible, you know. So I think, you know, we could learn a lot from each other. It doesn't matter if you have a title of inmate or a title of doctor or a title of garbage person, you know. Everybody has value and dignity, and we need to be able to learn from each other. You know, I, I came very quickly to find out there's such a fine line after working in three maximum security prison settings and a few county jails that were very big county jails in Colorado, Arapahoe County, uh, spending time over on Maui and Maui Cor Community Correctional Facility, just like a whole bunch of different places that I was exposed to and put myself in positions to learn. It's such a fine line between being free and being incarcerated. And I think that people take that for granted. It could happen from as easy as driving your 3,500-pound vehicle and hitting somebody, negligent, negligent homicide, uh, getting convicted of something that, you know, uh, you know, maybe you would have never done in your entire life, but due to poor circumstances, maybe one day you drank one beer and you ended up having an impairment. Um, you know, and that's not who you are as a person, but let's say that you were going through a divorce, you lost your kids, maybe one of your children died. That happens to people. Yeah. You know, you're trying to cope and people say, well, that'll never happen to me. I would never do that stuff. Well, you know, uh, that's the danger of it, right? Saying never. Yeah. Um, you're never quite sure what is your key that's going to push you to this point. Right. Um, that's hard. It's hard. I know a lot of great people that uh, that made bad choices. Yeah. You know, you, when you started to say thin line between, you know, incarceration and, and freedom, I, I started to think the, where I went with my brain wasn't the literal incarceration. I was thinking about the the mental wellness and the incarceration mm -hmm. of of our mind, mm -hmm. right? And, and being trapped in your own mind and not being able to move on with your life. And Bob Marley said it best, right? Emancipate yourself from mental slavery, mm. right? In his song, Redemption Song. I mean, that... that Truly, I mean, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. How do we overcome the confinements of our own mind that we create every single day mm -hmm. to be able to start living again? What What does that confinement look like to you? Personally? Well, well no, in general terms. Um, I think the confinement that I see on a daily basis is that people are having a very difficult time seeing beyond what the current stressor is in their life. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I work with people who are suicidal, for instance, and, uh, and any first responder who is suicidal, they are being bogged down usually by very common things. There usually is a child estrangement issue because there's a divorce pending or happened. Um, usually is a second divorce that they're on right now and going into their third marriage usually uh, they have child support payments that some of them can't afford and so they're working tons of overtime but in doing so they're detrimental uh, their detriment to themselves is their lack of sleep because they're working tons of overtime shifts but, well I mean just in that you know that you're not performing your best at work so your self-esteem gets eaten up and beaten up because you know that you could do better, but you can't because you're so exhausted all the time. When you're not sleeping, you're making bad decisions, one of which is, let's go out, let's, uh, let's go to brothels, let's go to strip clubs, let's drink as much as we can, let us try to enjoy ourselves, to feel alive again, and to feel some semblance of, of happiness. Um, you know, 
maybe engage in, in gambling behaviors and doing other kinds of high-risk things, popping wheelies on motorbikes on the highway, speeding excessively, just kind of leading this stuff to feel alive, you know. We see this in our military folks coming back too uh, because they they have this huge dump in adrenaline that, you know, they don't know what they could do again to chase that white rabbit to feel alive again, you know, to use substance abuse terms. Right. And um, and so I think that we create this recipe of disaster in our lives, and then we feel stuck. And then you can't see anything past it because you've created so many layers of muck. So I, I think that those are things that we have to try to emancipate ourselves of, of realizing, hey, this is, this is a finite amount of time, you know. Even if you're thinking, you know, I, I want to kill myself, you know, right now. And we, you know, I recently spoke to somebody who had a suicide attempt this last week um, and w- was calling for help. And as like, you know, let's talk about the ingredients that led down this road, you know. And when you start talking about the ingredients that lead down this road, you have the familial issues, you have the financial issues, you have the estrangement issues, parental issues. Shoot, we're at an age now. I've lost my parents already. But, you know, but there are people that right now, our age group, whose parents are going through dementia, they're going through different issues, you know, that they're dying. Right. And um, and so it's hard for people to be able to cope with things that they haven't been exposed to before. Um, so all of yeah. those things, I suppose, I think about. Yeah, and I guess it's, you know, you never know what is uh, going to be the trigger for you right yeah you don't know individual you don't know yeah i think about that in terms of you know you bring up losing a parent you know when my when my dad died it took me by surprise you know because i've in my course of my career and i think this is very similar for all of my peers right is we deal with death and dying on a regular basis Mm -hmm. but you never really know how it's going to affect you until it comes lands right in your lap mm-hmm. and suddenly becomes your issue to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a, it takes a spin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a different issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, the, uh, and, and I don't know, like how do we build resiliency for those events that are coming down the pipeline? Right. Cause we all, let's just put this on the table. We're all going to die. Yep. Right. And we're going to have people who are near us die. Mm-hmm. That's just a given. Mm-hmm. So, with that in mind, how do we set ourselves up to move forward successfully, mm-hmm. right? To build, and I know we, I think we talk about this all the time, and it's very superficial terms. We talk about, well, you got to exercise and you got to balance your life. and <laughs> But how do you really do all that? I think, honestly, you know, that's one of the things that I was just chatting about last week at the Fire Chiefs Conference is that we we beat ourselves up constantly saying, I need to eat right, I need to exercise, I need to get six to eight hours sleep. And the majority of folks are not able to do it or they're not doing it. So what is the consequence of it? People like me and you and others feel guilty. We get low self-esteem. We put ourselves down constantly for not performing or doing well enough. And that takes a toll on you because that brings you down in a really depressed state of mind mm-hmm. where you won't even perform, you know, other things. So I think we need to be a lot easier on ourselves and realize that there is so much that we could do. And, you know, within a day, there is only so much time. So 
not every day is going to be a perfect day. And I think that we need to get over this idea of what perfection is mm. uh, because we strive for perfectionism. Things have to be perfect. Well, what does a perfect day look like? You ate 2,000 calories, you exercise two hours, right? I mean, your Fitbit told you that you were doing a great job. I mean, what's, what's the extent of it, right? Yeah, and who sets that standard? Yes, yes. Right. That's a question, a real yes. question. No, <laughs> no, and, and this stuff. I mean, this. I mean, really, it could even be rhetorical, right? Because you have uh, these folks that are exercise physiologists, nutritionists. Um, you know, the FDA with our food groups, but then you know you have many different levels of conspiracies you could go down <laughs> through, right? With you know meat and eggs and all sorts of stuff. Well, you have people that don't do that stuff and they live healthy lives. Right. You know. There's some. There. So those are the. Those are to me are like the the deliberate uh, uh, organizational dynamics that sit there, right? Your organization mm-hmm. says, "Hey, you'll be at work from eight to five, or or you know, for twenty four hour shift, or whatever your shift looks like." And there's expected behaviors, right? So certain things are expected of you mm-hmm. um, that are that are mandated by your organization or mm-hmm. whatever by the FDA, who mm-hmm. says, "Hey, eat so many calories mm-hmm. if you want to be right," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the the subtle social things that happen, right? Uh, expectations that are set within our families or expectations that our friends set or, you know, the obvious elephant in the room is the the social media mm-hmm. platforms that set expectations that mm-hmm. are somewhat unrealistic, mm-hmm. that, you know, depending on who you are, right? Like mm-hmm. the the expectations may not fall into your wheelhouse or your mm-hmm. life or your or somebody is doing something super amazing on, on Instagram, mm-hmm. but they also don't have the same workload or work-life balance or stress issues that you have. That's right. And we only see the snippets of things that people put forth. Yeah. We don't know the grind. We don't know the hardships. We don't know that a lot of those people might live depressed lives every single day. Right. And they are just trudging through life trying to fake it till they make it and uh, and putting on this persona for others that other people are trying to emulate that doesn't exist, you know? Uh, right. Well, you, you're seeing the the what the ten percent of their life that's super amazing. That's correct. Right? Just the, it's curated. Yeah. Right. The, it, you're seeing the curated life, which is ridiculous. Perfect word for it. Perfect word for it. And you know, one of one of this buddy of mine that I know, he um, I knew him from a, a job that I was working at, and um, he was posting stuff on 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 Facebook specifically. And um, and I saw him posting stuff. I thought his life was going really well until one day I get a phone call saying that he's thinking of killing himself every single day. And I said, man, I thought everything was going really well with you. And he said, no, that's what I want people to believe. But he was honest with me and he told me about it. And his bills were coming up to $4,400 a month. He was earning 3000 So, you know, he's, Giant hole every he's, day. he's every single month. How are you going to catch up, right? So either you're going to go to jail for delinquent child support or you're going to go to jail for tax evasion. How? And you don't see any other way out, right? How do you convince somebody like that? Hey, let's try to develop a plan because there is always a way to be able to work something, you know? And um, even people in prison, as we said, stay alive when they're facing whatever music they need to. But people coming out of prison, just to go back to this here, people coming out of prison or people on probation or parole, they have to pay court fines and fees. And um, and so 
but they don't have transportation to get to jobs. They don't have transportation to get to to their probation office or their pro- parole office. So sometimes these people get what we call flopped. They end up having to to fail probation or parole because they didn't have transportation, money, availability to do stuff. Um, and when you get desperate and you feel disheartened, you say, "Man, forget it. I'm just gonna use alcohol again or do another hit to escape my." awful reality of life and then they end up going right back to prison uh, or and or jail and and honestly once you get hooked up into jail or prison the first time it's so much easier to get revoked on your parole or probation people don't realize that but you know the resiliency that you need to be able to pull through once you're caught up in the criminal justice system is a really high level of resiliency I learn. I learn from these people. I look at them. I, I pay attention to the things that they go through. You know. Yeah. And I, we could extend this to our first responders as well. You know. Yeah. We talk about recidivism and that the social mechanisms that are in place that make it that make that path the easiest path, right? And you talk about just simple something simple as having transportation mm-hmm. or even you know money to pay for bus fare or whatever yes. just the simple things you don't need a car necessarily no. but whatever mm-hmm. um having access to those little things uh, is really important and then you know if you have a felony the ability to get a job is really challenging mm-hmm. and so how does that set someone mm-hmm. up for success right yeah so true yeah it's when, I, when i was growing up i knew kids that would walk an hour and a half to two hours to get to school walk and you also knew people that would take a bus and they would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning as kids to take a bus into school to get there by 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Well, folks that are growing up here may not have been exposed to that stuff having to walk to school for two hours in the morning. So they wouldn't know what it's like because their resiliency hadn't been built up, right? So now we're telling them, okay, you're an adult. If you don't have bus fare or you don't have transportation, walk two hours to your probation appointment. And they're saying, I don't even understand what you're trying to tell me. Why would anybody want to walk two hours to an appointment, right? But that's because they weren't exposed to those things growing up. They didn't know, you know, levels of hardship that, you know, that they needed to do to overcome stuff. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) I see the connection for you going into first responders, but I want to tell you, like, how did you... How did that jump happen for you specifically, and why did you transition from, you know, uh, the correctional facilities into first response yeah. world? So was, I remember. So I had another uncle, Uncle Chandra. He died now, but uh, he was the police physician in Trinidad. So mm-hmm. any medical clearance stuff would go through him. And I remember thinking to myself too, "Wow, that's a really cool job." You know, I mean, how do you get to work with law enforcement officers doing this stuff and all of these things sort of to help me think outside the box, right? Uh, instead of having to be a police officer or to be a, a firefighter, I could work with them in an auxiliary capacity to be able to help service and take care of them. And so as I moved into corrections, working with corrections officers uh, peripherally side by side as we would respond to many things together in, in the yard um, or on the modules, in, uh, in the modules, I started to see uh, a lot of pain in people with severe mental illness. I started to see that in the prison systems, we had people who were getting choked up in there, who were being raped and beaten and abused by, by officers as well as by inmates. Um, and taken advantage of, and so they would, you know, anybody who was in general population was at high risk of being um, violated. Mm -hmm. And so 
I started to work backwards. I started to look at the corrections officers and think to myself, you know, these folks, some of them just don't look happy. They look like they're really having a hard time when they're coming into work. I filed that away in my brain. Coming into the community setting after leaving corrections behind. Uh, I was doing corrections work, but community-based corrections work, and I had more opportunity to work with uh, Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department in Colorado as we were helping to develop a crisis intervention team program. Uh, I was doing helping with the evaluation of that program. And that's where I first became exposed to CIT, to crisis intervention teamwork, was in Colorado. And um, and then working with the sheriff's deputies there and seeing how the officers were doing, paying attention once again, filing that stuff away, you know, listening to their stories as they would come up and they would just chat with you about different things, you know. I always had the personality for first responders. Like, it, it, it's like it's just endemic in who I am as, you know, I see myself as a a first responder psychologist, you know. So to me, like, you know, the crisis conversations, things that we would talk about were just very similar in terms of the things we would discuss as well as the humor that we would use, you know. Um, Both very warped kinds of things, you know. Yeah. And so moving from there to Maui after Colorado, um, working with Maui Police Department, I was with the Department of Health working with Maui Police Department, and uh, helping them to do their annual recall training. That's how I was first brought into the mix. Uh, and serendipity, really. My wife went to a training with uh, a now, she's a retired sergeant, Surrender Singh, my friend. And they sat doing an assist training, which was a, a suicide prevention training together. And Surrender and my wife hit it off. And, and she said, hey, you know anybody that wants to do training for police and my wife said, yeah, my husband would be a perfect fit. And that's how I got involved with Maui Police Department doing recall training, annual recall training on mental health. And then from that, it just, I, my relationships just spread like wildfire within the police department. And then we started to do crisis intervention team training, um, me, Surrender, and, and uh, James Fletcher and other folks uh, to help start that program within the department. Once we had that uh, relationship built, there was just, you know, it's the speed of trust, really, right? We had a chance to build great relationships. We rolled fire, Maui fire, into training. They had a great chief at the time, too. Just a good guy, good friend. And um, and we just made things happen. And so so working with, with them, you know, doing training and other things, one of the things that would happen is I would be at the station and guys would come up and they would say, hey, you know, I want to, could I bend your ear for a little bit? And then you would hear about the regular stories, the regular stories of the divorces, the regular stories of their children not doing well, right? Just a whole bunch of really intimate things for them. Well, that brings up a, a question for me, which is, what is the, what, what is the general, the most common thread, right? Is it, because, you know, on one hand, we think, oh, we see horrible stuff. Is it the horrible stuff we see that wrecks us? Or is it the, is it just the stress of life mm-hmm. and coping with that stuff commingled together? Yeah, I think it's one of those chicken and egg things that I think mm-hmm. are very hard to separate. You know, had you not been exposed to the trauma at work, would your life be so different right now? If you did not come from the military, right? But if you just were as a civilian going into law enforcement or firefighter world, EMS world. Um, and you weren't exposed to the child deaths, to the drownings, to having, I was talking about a sort of guy yesterday, you know, is retrieving a child's body out of a pool. Mm. And what 
runs through your mind as you're pulling a dead child out of a pool. And let's say it's a two-year-old child. Yuma police just had this happen last week. Uh, shoot, this week. It was a two-year-old and a three-year-old that drowned. Same sibling set. Uh, mom fell asleep on the couch, right? Because she was exhausted working an overnight shift. It could happen to any parent, right? You know what it's like when your kids are young. You know, you're living in like a, a trance half of the time because you're not sleeping enough, you know? Yeah. And these kids uh, die. Well, what's it like for the officer or for the firefighter coming in or, or the uh, AMBO worker? And they're, they're first hands on it. You visualize seeing a child in a pool and you think to yourself, it doesn't, it seems surreal, right? It seems surreal. Like, it's like, this can't really be real life. Those must be two dolls that are floating in there. At least I have to picture it that way. I have to try to see it that way. That I have to depersonalize is that those cannot be real bodies. And I'll pull them out. And I know that they are. But I, I get hands on. I retrieve the body. And I start to work the child. But you work in the child. And thank God we do this CPR training, right? Because at least we have experiences with dummy dolls to be able to try to imagine that this is a, just a, a dummy doll that you're doing. You know it's not, yeah. but you're trying to, resiliency-wise, you're trying to protect your psyche. Yeah. And so you try to work this child and, you know, yeah. it you sucks. Know, you know, from a resiliency perspective, it's the thing that, I've, that I always told myself was, this was the tool I used was, hey, I didn't create this problem. Yeah. I'm simply here to try to help. Yeah. Right. And and I would I would try to help whether I was trained or not. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you know, bless be the fire department and, and mm -hmm. the schools I've gone to. I have training to be able to intervene here. Yes. Yes. You yes. Know? And yes. that has always yes, helped like me that. to process it, to recognize that I'm set apart from the actual emergency. I love that. You know, interestingly, too, you talked about the visual, right, that we have. Because so for me. Uh, and we've talked about this before, but mm -hmm. this the indelible memories that, mm -hmm. that resurface, right? Mm -hmm. And right now I'm assigned up in the alarm room and I deal with, um, I have a lot of dispatchers I deal with who have, um, you know, they tell me that for them, they lay down at night and they hear yes. the audio played yeah. back in their head. And I'm yeah. like, well, that's a very different form of trauma, Yeah. right? Trauma nonetheless, but yeah. just a different avenue of approach. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. It's rough. It's yeah, real rough. Yeah. So I guess my the question in my head is, well, how do I how do I help yeah. my my partner at work? How do I help my dispatchers, yeah. my friends, my mm -hmm. family process this this um, these heavy events mm -hmm. for one? Right. Let's just talk about that. We go through this as public safety folks, police and fire. Mm -hmm. We see and hear mm -hmm. some of the worst stuff. Mm -hmm. So where do we start with processing that? So number one is, in, um, so you used a word there that I teach uh, in my lectures that uh, dealing with, right? I, I, deal, I deal with people in the alarm room. I deal with people, you know, on, on calls. And I take away that word deal with completely. Mm. Uh, so I help. I help people. I work with people. I assist people. That's what I do, right? I never deal with anybody, period. Because if I deal with them, I'm tolerating them, I'm putting up with them, and then I am going to have this level of stress that carries through with me at nighttime where I'm trying to rest. And I'm and, and because I had dealt with so many things, I feel like my cup is full, my plate is full. And so when I assist people, I assist people on the spot and I move on, right? In a very crisis-oriented mode. I work with people right then and I move on. I have to because there's always going to be a next call. There's always going to be something else that comes up. Mm. 
So that's number one, I think, is we're starting to change that kind of uh, mindset in the rhetoric that we use. You All know? right, I'll fix it right now. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'll never do it <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny, though. I wonder. Okay, I mess hold, up, too, I'm going to go back real quick and go, why did I use that word? Because as you said that, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Why did I say that word? Um, because I wonder if that's me. Like, I have to. It's public safety. Yeah. I set myself apart from the problem. Yeah. That's yeah. what that is, right? Yeah. So I'm saying, hey, you have a, you have a problem. Yeah. I'm just over here messing with it. Yeah. I'm just here to, to help you yeah. deal with it, yeah. your, your stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's not good enough because I see the, deal, the word deal with leads to people getting burnt out. Yeah. Uh, and it's over a long period of time. It, you know, anybody that has to deal with anything for a long time, that means you have to endure stuff. Mm. And we don't, we don't need to live a life of enduring things. We should be participatory in what we're doing in our life, you know, and, and let's engage, let's assist, and then I'm going to move on from it. Because I, I need to. Not that I have to. I need to. I mm-hmm. want to. I need to disengage from it to move on, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that's one thing. Number two is I don't think that people take enough breaks. I think that we need to be able to... to I'm not talking about like five-minute break, ten-minute smoke breaks. I'm talking about take two weeks away from your job as a dispatcher, a call taker, and separate out completely from receiving phone calls. So that the movie reel and the audio reel that plays in your mind could get a rest, you know. Mm. And and I think about this like an inflamed muscle, you know. If you have an inflamed muscle, like right now, I you know have this silly plantar fasciitis thing oh, going I've been on, there. right? It's horrible, right? It's, it sucks, right? <laughs> it's the worst. But you keep doing things because you have to walk every day, and so you keep doing things to irritate it. Is the exact same principle. I get across to a phone call. I have this script in my head. It keeps playing over and over and over again. Well, the best part is when you could control that by taking a break, take a break. Mm. You know. So does that look like um, like going on vacation? Yes, sir. Or like yes. trying to find alternate work assignments? No, no, going on vacation. Okay. You know, there are some call takers that love their job, but they just they've done it so long they get salty. Yeah. Um, because they haven't taken the time to separate out from it enough. Because they have a, a belief that if I don't do it, then who will do it? Or if I don't do it, then somebody will mess it up. And 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 that's just not the truth. I mean, you know, I see it not only in dispatch. I see it in sil- in child sex crime units and SVU units. I see it in firefighters that respond to wildfires. I see it right. You see it in in, in homicide detectives. You see it in a number of different people where they think to themselves, "I'm not going to share anything that I that I do with anybody because I don't want to traumatize them." And then number two, if I if I do end up doing stuff, I need to keep working to try to to do this job because nobody else will be able to do it like I will. But then you take a you said this in the beginning, and this is a hundred percent true. We are all going to die. It takes it back to the beginning. And when you think that we're all going to die, I know one thing for sure. I am just a butt in a seat. I might be great at what I do. But I will die, and when I do die, somebody else is going to fill a butt in that seat. Yeah. And and I need to become okay with that, knowing that there are other people alive right now besides me that could do this job. And uh, and I need to trust them. I need to be able to know that I might see products that I may not have put out, um, you know, in, in the work that I do um, as a first responder. But at the same time, sometimes done is good enough. Right. Hey, and can we agree that when you take vacation mm-hmm. and come back refreshed, you're actually better at what you do? Yes, sir. Yes. 
So I think yeah. there's some that we need to keep remind ourselves yes. that like this is healthy for me and yeah. healthy for my organization. Yeah. Yeah. If I go away for a minute and come back refreshed, I'm actually going to be a more yes. productive employee. 100%. Yeah. And you know, here's the thing, right, Rain, is you take a week off and most first responders would use the first two and a half days to decompress before they get into vacation mode. They can't get the weight off of their shoulders, sometimes two to three days adjustment period. So if I just give you a week off, and let's say you got off on Friday, that's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you're going to be no good. You're going to be tired, exhausted, maybe get a cold. You're going to try to rest and just try to become less grumpy. Then, so let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you actually have a good time. You relax. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're gearing back up for work again in anticipatory or anticipation that you're going to have stress when you get back. So really, out of a week, you only got three days of vacation. So we need to make these vacation periods longer so you actually have rest. And so you take two weeks off, and hopefully within that, you'll get about eight days that you have to be able to relax, you know? Well, I will tell you, my wife and I are planning a trip uh, for the end of the year, and we went to go buy the tickets. Mm-hmm. I said, she went to, she's like, I'm doing it. <laughs> and I, I said, whoa, whoa. I had a, uh, a wave, uh, just a way weird wave of anxiety wash over me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. And mm-hmm. I said, Hey, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm having a moment. Mm-hmm. And, and she's <laughs> like, well, you better get over it. Cause I'm about to hit buy <laughs> on these tickets. And, um, and I said, okay, okay. Deep breath. Okay. I'm good. Like I want to do this. But it was it, it just kind of it, it impressed upon me this idea that God there is this stress even though I feel like I'm a pretty mm-hmm. unstressed person when it comes to like the way I manage my anxiety and stress about work I handle it pretty well I think mm-hmm. but these waves of of moments come mm-hmm. over me and I'm like ooh that ain't healthy mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's so true, man. So, okay, so take a break. Take a break. What else? And so take like a, a real vacation. Yeah. Here's the next thing. Coming back to work, do not have mental rehearsals of negative things that you're going to face coming back. Mm. And so if I start to think to myself, man, I regret going on vacation because now I get back, I have 500 emails to respond to. I I have this supervisor that is right in me that I'm going to have to face again. I have this coworker who talks too much and I don't like spending time around them, right? I have these, because a lot of times really, it's not the calls that come in, it's all the other crap that you have to, that you're faced with at work, you know? It's the uh, colleagues sometimes that drag you down because they are negative people in the environment. You know, it's, it's different things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of first responders I know would, they, patient care is no big deal. They could take care of the community and the patients pretty well or the or the folks in the community who are well, the law enforcement-based people, you know. It's the other administrative stuff. And, and now, even more so than ever, it's the violence that first responders are facing. So firefighters as well as law enforcement personnel are facing violence. Um, and, and they're facing violence from the community as well as from the people that they're rolling on, you know, and that is a whole different paradigm. That's a different show, you know, uh, but that is, is very, is very stress inducing and consuming because now you're wondering, am I going to survive this job? And the job is the people that I roll on in the field, but am I going to survive this job from the political climate of being persecuted if I happen to engage with somebody of a different race and then that person says that I did something that was racist or wrong? Mm. Because now there is you know, just even more scrutiny on this entire piece, 
and I'm not going to give a value judgment on it as right or wrong. I'm going to say that there is more scrutiny, period. And uh, and people are leaving the profession in droves, uh, especially on the law enforcement side. Yeah. Because it's not worth them going to jail over to lose their entire life, you know? Um, and I get it. I, I understand it, you know? Um, I've had a gun pointed at me twice, um, you know, and, and I learned one uh, twice from police, you know, um, and, you know, you can't see who I am. I'm brown, right? <laughs> and so for whatever that's worth, right, um, not once did I think to myself it was because I was brown. And I knew on both circumstances, one of them I had no cl- Well, the first one I should say it was in Montreal, um, and I was going to a gas station to try to go ask direc- directions. Uh, it was ironically me as one brown person in a car with four white dudes, right? We were all in our dorm and we were going to Quebec to Montreal to go have a good time. And and police showed up. Somebody pressed a panic alarm and police showed up and drew down on me. Uh, I had no clue what was going on. I, once again, never been exposed to that kind of stuff. But option C, build resiliency, Right from it, you know, what the heck just happened, and how do I process getting guns pointed at me for right. no reason? And then something happened, and they dropped their weapons and they rolled on. And no apologies given, <laughs> right? Uh, second time was in Tobago off of Trinidad. There was a curfew that was taking place. We were on the beach. Uh, they had a coup uh, that was an attempted coup, and um, I would say it was actually a successful coup. But then they they got overturned. And then um, police drew down on, on us on the beach while we were on the beach. Um, you know, those things open your eyes to the fact that life is precious, number one. And number two, you know, there are things that you will do sometimes that will draw attention to, to what you're doing in a negative way. And sometimes, you know, you you have to take responsibility for the actions that you make, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, the second time was uh, definitely an action of a responsibility for things that we had chosen to do. And, um, but I feel like, you know, we, you know, when, here's an, you're a person of color like I am, right? When, when we were growing up, I, I'm sure that you may have had this conversation with your dad. And I know that I did with my dad. And this isn't once again to beat up anybody in the community, but for people to revisit these conversations because they need to happen. My dad told us, if anybody is following you, when you come in home, you make a block. And if they continue to follow you coming home, you drive to the police station, Right. Because hopefully there'll be somebody there to be able to help protect you. Number two, if you get stopped by police, you keep your hands on the wheel at all times, all times, and you be polite and respectful. Okay? Now, that guy could be a jerk or that gal could be a jerk. That has nothing to do with me. Yeah. I'm keeping my hands on the wheel. How did I learn that now, 40, you know, 35 years ago, right? Um, And... Where has that gone, that message? You know, should we have to have that message, that conversation? I don't know. That's a that's a philosophical debate. Right. But I'm glad that my parents had that conversation with me and my sister. Yeah. Because it prevented a lot of stuff, you yeah. know, from, from occurring. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, it, it, you know, what I, what I see in that conversation, which is really interesting to me, is that the public safety side of that is they have a really tough job to do. And my job as a citizen is just to help them do this the easiest way possible. Yes, sir. You yeah. know, I have a, um, our, t- our truck has a, 
very dark tinted windows. So when I get pulled over, all the windows go down immediately. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I want you to see inside yes. this vehicle. Agreed. I don't want to make this an issue for you where you 100%. have to be like, hey, what do you got in the back seat? I'm just exactly. going to show you. Yes, sir. And because I want it to be easy for you because I know you have a stressful job yes. to do. Yes. And, uh, you know. Fire trucks, same thing, right? How many times do you go code three on a fire truck and people forget how to drive? They just <laughs> stop right there in the middle of the road. Right. They, you know, you're like, what the heck are you people doing? Get right. out of our way. When I was growing up, next lesson, you have a public safety vehicle, you pull to the side of the road, and you wait until they pass. You don't tailgate the vehicle. I mean, we're talking about common sense stuff that I learned growing up, you know? Yeah. Um, but I just don't know where that is anymore. And and we see a whole bunch of people who are, you know, getting in trouble for the actions that they that they choose. But, you know, we're, we're persecuting people over it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Well, hey, I want to yeah. um, I want to ask you some rapid fire questions. Yes, sir. And then we'll wrap up. Yeah. Okay. This might not be very rapid fire, but give me the <laughs> rapid fire. We'll keep you up at night. <laughs> Honestly speaking, I'm looking for the perfect mattress. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. I haven't found it yet. <laughs> that, <laughs> I, I like that. I'm, I'm struggling to find a perfect mattress. If anybody has advice, man, I'll take it. We went through Casper, Purple, Tempopedic, they all junk. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's ridiculous. All right. Worst movie you've ever watched? Oh, shoot. It'll have to be The Exorcist because I hate horror films. Oh, The Exorcist? Yeah. 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 I got some trouble. We need to talk about that. I got some (laughs) trauma from that movie. Um, I don't think seeing a child's head turning around is a a good thing for me. Nothing good in that. (laughs) All right. If you could buy a plane ticket to anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? I would always choose, um, I would say, Bora Bora because it's a place that I see out of reach financially. uh, But just to be able to stay in those bungalows and just to be alone... Uh, with my family, you know, and uh, maybe even, you know, I just want my family, you know, just to kind of just go there and just chill out and, and just enjoy island life. I'm an island boy, you know, I love the water. That makes me happy. And so I think that would be really nice. Go spend a few weeks out there and just chill out and just kind of, you know, zone out. That would be really ideal. Nice. Mm-hmm. That sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Dara, thank you for taking some time and, and, and wrapping with me and sharing You're your welcome. thoughts. I really appreciate it. Um, I know you have uh, an upcoming, you, you hinted to it a couple times, the first responder conference. Yeah. Um, tell folks where they can, where they can sign up for that, what they what they might find there, what would be of interest to them. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, go to my website, uh, com, and you'd be able to find the, the registry link on mm-hmm. that. Uh, this year, we actually have a phenomenal cast of people that will be talking. This is all about building resiliency for first responders and for their family members. Oftentimes, we've gotten feedback from family members saying, I didn't realize what my first responder was going through. I live with them, but I didn't understand why they were making certain decisions and things that they quirks that they have, right? So I invite any family members or first responders to be able to attend. And uh, we we will define first responders all the way through sworn and unsworn personnel, uh, dispatch, forensic techs, uh, other people that are support staff within agencies and departments, uh, dispatchers, call takers, just very important people that help the ship to run, right? Um, 
We have, I don't know if you know Kepra Jack. Uh, she's out with Hot Fit for I Duty. Do know. Yeah, She'll I do be know presenting on Hot Health Stuff, oh, um, cool. which is great. Then we have uh, Dr. Donnie Hutchinson, who's going to talk about work life balance in the first responder world. He goes around talking to folks. We have Chief Neil Gang, who's out of Pinole. He's the chief of Pinole uh, Police Department. But he used to be out here in Scottsdale before that in police. And Erin Crow who is a child of a cop who's going to talk about what it was like for her growing up um, being, you know, a child of a, of a police officer who was an undercover operative. And then I want to take a look at how do we debunk treatment. Let's talk about debunking treatment. So somebody needs substance abuse treatment. How, where do they go? How, what, what happens when they walk into the door the first time, when they make the first phone call? I'm going to have a panel of people that are going to present on that stuff for me, uh, people that I trust, people that are my friends that, that do the treatment. And so we're going to have them come along. Deanna and Felicia will be heading that with Vicky and maybe Theo. And then uh, Dr. Catherine Kuhlman, who owns a practice out in Scottsdale. She's a psychologist and a friend of mine. She's going to talk about destigmatizing care as well as building resiliency in our first responder population. And Nick Lorenz is a retired firefighter, fire captain from Scottsdale. He's going to come in and talk to us about his own journey of PTSD and suicide and recovery and resiliency. Um, I'll do a segment. My segment this year is going to be very different to anything I've ever done and is going to be taboo. I'm going to talk about infidelity in first responders. Mm. I think it's about time that we pull that, that cover back and we start having a hard conversation about really what's going on with it and how we could prevent ourselves from falling into that trap and why we're doing it, you know? So I want to talk about that. Um, my sister-in-law, who's a, a doctor, a naturopathic doctor, uh, Betsy uh, Rice, she's going to come in and she's going to give us uh, healthy ways of living, nutrition, yoga stuff. She's done a segment every year since we started and has always been phenomenal. Uh, people always ask for more of it. And then uh, you mentioned earlier on the 100 Club. Uh, the 100 Club and my buddy Joe Ramirez, um, uh, they're going to do a segment uh, to talk about the resources that are available to first responders. Uh, Joe uh, he owns a company called Apex Mobile, but his uh, sponsorship comes through the Lighthouse Health and Wellness uh, segment of his company. And they are integrity sponsors. They're going to sponsor at least 40 people to attend this conference for free, which is incredible. Um, and every year he steps up to be able to sponsor first responders in. And he vet develops free apps for first responder agencies, fire, uh, EMS, uh, police, to be able to get them health and wellness resources. So... He was the architect with Ivo Rodi behind uh, the fireproof and, and uh, bulletproof apps. Of course, uh, and I, I want to pay homage to, to Brian French and Carrie Romello for really going about and doing the, you know, the stuff that they've done with, uh, with Fire Strong because that really, in my opinion, is the, is the you know, core of where all of this stuff has built off of. So we, we definitely have to pay respect to that. Uh, I, you know, I want to make sure that they are acknowledged in, in what they've done to and continue to do. Um, then Dan Green is a buddy of mine who's going to come in from Chandler PD. He's a sergeant, and he's going to talk about uh, PTSD by a thousand cuts. Mm. Uh, you know, not many officers are going to get into a, a scenario where they're going to end up shooting somebody. Uh, thank God for that. 
but what happens to the run-of-the-mill calls that we go on every day that start to create that road rash, you know, in, in your soul? And so he'll talk about that piece. And then I have a, a buddy of mine who's a captain, Matt Fiorenzo, out in, in uh, California, um, just in Orange County. And he's going to talk about resiliency and, and how things are building up within fire service. And Sean Stoddard was a local cop here in Mesa PD. He's still a, a, a cop at Mesa PD. And if you remember, Sean was struck by a vehicle on the highway when he was trying to remove a ladder uh, off of the road, off of the highway. And he suffered a traumatic brain injury and he almost died. And he stayed in the ICU for many, many, many months. Um, he's going to come and talk about what it's like to be involved in an accident, still keep your job, yeah. be involved in the military, which he is still, and also have a non-profit and continue to live with a traumatic brain injury and, and get back to the road of recovery. And in a lot of ways, this really speaks very closely to our other sponsor, which is the Brain Injury Alliance of Arizona. Um, and and Carrie has been phenomenal at supporting our conference uh, for a couple of years at least. Um, and Sean has come on to this segment that I do with the Brain Injury Alliance um, every month to talk about his brain injury. So he's going to come in there and talk to us about what resiliency looks like from a physical perspective, too, of having to, to stay healthy. Then we have Scott Medlin, who's going to, he's a cop that talks about health and wellness for, for cops. Um, I think that's an important segment and how to essentially untwist your mind from the mental constraints that we were talking about earlier on today. And then Stephen Johnson is a friend of mine that lives down in Tucson. He's a medically retired firefighter. And he talks about brain science in the fire service and in first responder world to see how we could utilize some brain science to get rid of our PTSD. So it's really a phenomenal lineup. And, you know, I'm just very fortunate to have, um, you know, amazing sponsors. Oasis Behavioral Health is, a, is another sponsor. Uh, Tiffany Herring is just a great partner to be able to have. So all of these sponsors are really what make this conference free. And so um, I'm going to put that money towards being able to have the platform to be able to service people. And then, you know, there is a, a balance of money and people may, may wonder, well, hey, what happens to that extra money? I actually do pro bono services as well for people that can't afford stuff. So a lot of that stuff just gets rolled over into first responder services and stuff that we do. Um, so it really is great. You know, the sponsors are really what make things happen every year. And, and I'm very grateful for them. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So that... That conference is in September? September 24th, and okay. that's going to be an all-day, 8 to 4. And then the second day, which is different content, because we have so many speakers, is going to be on October 1st from 8 to 4. Oh, cool. And, um, and so register for both days, because both days have different content. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Content yeah, things. Excellent. Yeah. So blue paths and i'll make sure there's a link in the uh in the show notes uh, for people to be able to find their way there and um yeah and if they want to reach out to you personally they can find your contact information there as well i'm certain yes sir yeah okay. yeah and you know i plaster my cell phone all over the internet in case anybody is in crisis and they need help um i've received phone calls texts uh emails any hour of the night um or day uh, to be able to help people, I want every first responder to know. In fact, on my challenge coin that I have is Latin that says "No one walks alone," and um, and I and I firmly believe that, and I practice that every day. You know, if if you guys feel like 
you are at your wit's end and you need somebody to talk to, you know, even if I could just be your resource temporarily and you could see somebody else full time, it doesn't matter to me so long as you get taken care of. So my cell phone is on the internet, is on my website, 602-345-1425 and, um, and people could, you know, reach out whenever they need any kind of help. I also have a resource page on my website too. So people, if they wanted resources, they could see resources on there to be able to get help. I love it. No one yeah. walks alone. No one walks alone, bro. Yeah. And thank you for, for having me do this. I appreciate oh, it, Ray. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you listening. Um, Dr. Dara, thanks for taking time out of your schedule to share with us some of the thoughts and ideas and concerns you have about public safety and how we can be more resilient and more durable of mind and body. Uh, so important. Uh, such an important conversation. Thank you for, uh, for being an advocate for public safety. Uh, if you go to the show notes, you'll see more information, links on how to get to Dr. Dar if you would like to reach out to him and uh, the uh, public safety conference that's coming up shortly, how you can register for that. Additionally, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, get to whatever platform you enjoy most and subscribe and this uh, podcast will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. Now, go on out there, look at your life, figure out ways that you can improve and develop yourself. Go on, get some.